Hello, everyone, and welcome to Amanpour. Here's what's coming up. The U.S. and U.K. strike Houthis in Yemen. Could it spark a larger conflict? I asked retired Colonel Peter Mansour. And Israel defends itself against genocide at the U.N.'s highest court. Political scientist Dahlia Scheidlin joins me for more. Then, on the brink of famine, World Food Program's Cindy McCain tells Walter Isaacson that Gaza is starving. Also, journalists in the crosshairs. We revisit Christiane's conversation with reporter Lindsay Hilsom and actress Rosamund Pike, who portrayed the late legendary war correspondent Marie Colvin in the film A Private War. Plus, a birthday celebration for one of the world's top composers. Sir, Sir Carl Jenkins joins the show from Carnegie Hall. Welcome to the program, everyone. I'm Bianca Goldriga in New York, sitting in for Christian Amanpour. Dramatic moves in the dark of the night as the U.S. and U.K. struck Houthi targets in Yemen. Washington warned that this could be coming after the Iranian-backed Houthis continued to attack commercial vessels in the Red Sea. The Houthis, who run most of western Yemen, including the coastline, say they're doing it in support of the Palestinians. But the Americans say the Houthis are targeting ships indiscriminately and disrupting a vital waterway for the global economy. Massive protests broke out in Yemen's capital of Sanaa, and the Houthi leaders say that the strikes, quote, will not go unanswered. There's a complicated geopolitical web, and the risk of a wider war keeps rising. Retired Colonel Peter Mansour is a professor of military history at Ohio State University, and he joins me from Columbus. Thank you so much for joining the program. So as noted, these strikes were to be anticipated by the Houthis. And together with the U.K. and others in the alliance, more than 60 targets were hit overnight, spread over 16 locations. This includes Houthi air bases, munitions depots, launching sites, radar helping guide some of these missiles. In totality, and what we now know following these attacks, how effective do you think they have been in preventing further types of attacks by the Houthis? Well, the attacks won't prevent further attacks. In fact, it's a certainty that the Houthis will respond, uh, having been uh, attacked on their soil. But the purpose of these attacks is to degrade their capabilities, reduce the number of missiles at their disposal, reduce their ability to target vessels transiting the Bab el-Mandab Strait. And so uh, we'll see how effective these attacks will have been. But my guess is that they will be, need to be repeated in the future to really uh, put a dent in the Houthi capabilities. And President Biden said that, that he uh, would indeed do just that if these attacks continued. I mean, how much of this uh, tit for tat back and forth do you think we can anticipate without concerns, of course, growing of a larger regional conflict, perhaps not just involving the U.S. and allies with the Houthis, but perhaps their sponsors even, Iran? Well, this can go on for quite some time. It reminds me of the tanker war in the in the Gulf in the 1980s, which uh, lasted for months. And so this is not going to be a, a one-off uh, event. Uh, the real danger here is if Iran miscalculates uh, the Iranian uh, Navy has uh, apprehended one oil tanker in the Gulf. They now have five such vessels in their in captivity. And if they uh, overreach and there is a war that brings Iran into the conflict, then you have a major uh, conflict in the Middle East. 
Uh, they're not very subtle uh, about their mission, the Houthis. I mean, their slogan reads, death to America, death to Israel, a curse upon the Jews. Uh, that having been said, th they say that they're doing this in support of the Palestinians, but given their allegiance and reliance upon Iran, who supplies them with weapons, with military intelligence, uh, how far do you think Iran is willing to go with this particular proxy? Because up until now, we've been focused most exclusively on Hezbollah and how much Iran values that proxy in southern Lebanon. Well, Iran is, uh, is very calculated in how it uses its proxy forces, the so-called axis of resistance around the Middle East. It's attacked U.S. forces in Iraq using uh, Iraqi militia groups. Uh, Hezbollah is attacking northern Israel with rockets. Of course, Hamas is tied up with a major conflict in Gaza. And now the Houthis trying to interdict international shipping in the Red Sea. Very indiscriminate, though. These ships aren't headed to Israel. They're not owned by Israel. All they are trying to do is interrupt world commerce in order to gain attention on the conflict. And they've done that pretty well. Yeah, container traffic in the Red Sea, we should note, has dropped nearly 100 uh, percent. There is no container traffic to be said of uh, since this war began and since the Houthis started attacking these ships. Nearly 15 percent of global sea trade passes through the Red Sea. So it's understandable why this is viewed uh, through the lens of the global economy and not just a regional problem. Can you talk about why the Houthis have grown from such a, a nuisance in the region, because there's a history there, a multi-year war with the Saudis, a much richer country, a larger country with a larger military that had to settle really on a truce after years of war with the Houthis, uh, a militia of just roughly about 100,000 soldiers. Why are they as strong as they are? Well, the answer is pretty clear. Uh, they have Ara Iranian backing. Iran has supplied them with uh, all of their high-tech weaponry. Uh, the missiles they use, the drones, the radar systems, uh, this, these are not produced in Yemen. They're, they come in from outside the country and they're purchased and provided by Iran. So this is Iran attempting to spread its tentacles around the Middle East and uh, make the Middle East uh, Iranian territory in essence. And by forcing international shipping away from the Red Sea, they have put the world on notice that they're the great power in the region. You need to deal with them and, uh, and if you want to get anywhere. Uh, it's interesting. A few weeks ago, I interviewed an expert who had described uh, the Houthis as basically fighting a fog. Even if you send in the Navy to battle them, they are hard to defeat. Um, they're hard to deter. They act as a militia. And given that, uh, the Houthi Supreme Political Council just said in response to these strikes that, quote, U.S. and U.K. interests are le legitimate targets. Um, how worried are you uh, about this kind of rhetoric? Is it bluster or do you think it's something that the U.S. and U.K. should take seriously? Well, we should take it seriously. The Houthis don't have uh, a track record of attacking outside the region. So I'm, I'm not sure that they're going to be fomenting a, a terrorist campaign on British or American soil, but they certainly will attack our interests in the region within their capabilities. And uh, as a result, I suspect this tit for tat is going to go on for quite some time and they'll start targeting our military uh, naval vessels as well as commercial shipping. 
In terms of more effective ways of deterring them and stopping this tit-for-tat from escalating, you know, the United States had removed them from the terror list in 2021 as it was trying to renegotiate or open communication with Iran. Given its actions as of late, do you believe that it is time to once again designate the Houthis as a terror organization? Yeah, I think you're going to have to do that because what they're doing, uh, attacking international shipping, is uh, against the international law. It is a terroristic action in an attempt to uh, use violence to gain attention on a political matter. Uh, but they haven't declared war against the entire world, and yet they've attacked more than 50 nations uh, 27, in 27 different attacks uh, since uh, 19 November. So uh, I think the United States um, needs to think hard about uh, putting the Houthis back on the terror list. All right, retired Colonel Peter Monsoor, great to have you on. Thank you for your expertise. We appreciate Thank it. You. Well, today Israel defended itself against charges of genocide brought by South Africa at the UN's highest court, the International Court of Justice. Take a listen. It is respectfully submitted that the application and re request should be dismissed for what they are, a libel designed to deny Israel the right to defend itself according to the law from the unprecedented terrorist on onslaught it continues to face and to free the 100 and 136 hostages Hamas still holds. This comes one day after South Africa presented its case, alleging Israeli leadership was intent on destroying the Palestinians in Gaza. In the coming days and weeks, the ICJ's panel of judges will decide whether to grant South Africa's request to order a halt to the Gaza offensive. A final ruling from the court on whether it believes Israel has committed genocide could take years. Here now to discuss this and much more is political scientist Dahlia Shenlin. Dahlia, uh, welcome to the program from Tel Aviv. It's really great to have you on. So yesterday we heard South Africa's arguments uh, accusing Israel of genocide, committing genocide uh, against the Palestinians, um, or at least the presumption of it, the plausibility of genocide, which is a lower standard that would have to be met by the court. Today, we heard the Israeli defense from multiple uh, attorneys there and advocates uh, defending Israel. I'm curious to get your take on what stood out to you from what you heard and how effective their arguments were. Yeah, I think the most important argument that Israel was trying to make, both in court and in its public diplomacy, its sort of messaging within the public environment, was all about context, a word that has been sort of uh, fallen into a controversial situation after October 7th. But what they're trying to say is that the context for this war was October 7th. And I think to me, the interesting argument was that Israelis believe that this entire accusation of genocide is completely unfounded because Israel was responding to what it considers to be a genocidal attack, certainly an attack on its civilians on sovereign territory. But that's not a strong legal argument because even the worst attack, as the South African team said yesterday, doesn't justify breaches of the Genocide Convention. However, I think to me, the interesting distinction Israel tried to make today was that this is an ongoing threat and that in its perspective, from Israel's perspective, the war is facing the ongoing threat of Hamas, which continues to pose a threat to Israel's people, its sovereign territory, rocket fire, and of course the hostages. So to my mind, that was one of the strongest arguments. I think there are other arguments that weren't quite as strong, which is essentially Israel's broader argument that 
this is either an anti-Israel plot, absurd, politicized, anti-Semitic, and that is something that we heard in you know pretty much every forum outside the court. Um, and I think that it's unfortunate in a way. The other problem I think is that Israel is trying uh, Israel is trying to make the case that South Africa's argument that senior Israeli officials who have made statements that can be interpreted with genocidal intent are not meaningful because they're not coming from the most senior officials. But of course, South Africa's team preempted some of those arguments by citing statements from the prime minister, from the president, from the defense minister at the highest levels. And so I think there is still uh, a tough case to make, but still most Israelis think that these charges are frankly spurious. I have to say that it's not making much of an impression on Israeli society. They are simply viewing this as an anti-Israel kind of unique singling out of Israel for actions that they believe any other country would have undertaken under the circumstances. Yeah, and, and it does appear from public statements that the United States also said publicly that these charges are meritless. And just uh, a few hours ago, we heard from Germany saying that they do not support these accusations by South Africa as well. But it's worth noting, no matter where on the political spectrum uh, Israelis lie, I'm not speaking for every Israeli, but it does seem that a large portion of the country was not only glued to these hearings, but also took the view that you just described, that this sort of shocked uh, response as to how Israel of all countries could be accused of genocide, not only because Israel was attacked itself in a terror attack on October 7th, but obviously its own history. Um, you wrote a piece uh, this week say, called Israelis Can't Understand How They Could Be Accused of Genocide. And here's what you wrote. As a decades-old student of conflict, the creativity of human savagery never ceases to amaze me. But it's time to accept that we've simply joined the grim list of people embroiled in mass atrocities with perpetrators and victims on this side or the other, wildly mixed. What led you to write this piece and come to this conclusion? Well, I think one of the things that's confusing for Israelis is that they see this as a charge that is singling out Israel. In fact, they tend to look at the entire system of uh, international courts and international law and the UN in particular as fundamentally anti-Israel and singling out Israel. I disagree with this approach, and I think that it's largely because of the fact that Israelis being embroiled in an ongoing military occupation and conflict see themselves in a unique position. They think that nobody understands their suffering, their situation. And this is something that I've experienced in many conflicts that I've worked on, either as an academic or as a public opinion researcher. I've visited some of these post-conflict areas. If you think of places like the Balkans, certainly Rwanda, but the Balkans in particular, I've noticed that there are many people who think that nobody understands them. And many of these conflicts have over overlapping features. Uh, the, it's terrible to have to play a numbers game, but there have been conflicts with atrocities against civilians uh, with far greater numbers. And as I, I, I hate to have to admit, horrors and savagery that is really remarkable and devastating. And Israelis, I think because they don't see that, I think many people involved in their own conflict have a hard time seeing that these things do go on elsewhere and they think nobody can understand them. I think if Israel did try to place its conflict, Israelis and Palestinians for that matter, tried to understand that there are conflicts around the world and the international system and international law and international courts was designed to address all of them, they might not feel so singled out. As we know, the ICJ has heard cases involving Russia and Ukraine. And as the South African delegation said again yesterday, the Gambia against um, against against Myanmar for the military, the accusations of genocide against the Rohingya. And the court did order measures against both of those countries. And this could help Israelis, first of all, 
not to feel so alone, but also to realize that these laws and institutions were not established purposely to target them. They are established actually to try to address humanity as a single entity in which everybody has human rights and deserves institutional protection. But I also understand that that's a very hard argument to make for Israelis having suffered what happened on October 7th and of course having a long-term history. Uh, it was unprecedented and the country is still at war. People are still grieving and anguished and losing people and reliving that trauma every day. Yeah, and people around the world continue to say that they don't feel like enough pressure is put on Hamas, not only to release the hostages, but to lay down their arms as well in their role in this heinous, heinous attack. Um, and it, you could call their actions genocidal as well, though that would be arbitrated in a separate court. Um, I mentioned the hostages, and we do know that family members of hostages were in the court in The Hague there as well. And, um, you know, not a day goes by where I don't think about these families and what they're going through. We have video of um, a mother uh, of one of the hostages. I mean, you realize how small the country is and how close Gaza and the border and where their loved ones are being held is. And a mother speaking, um, you know, with uh, as loudly as she can to her child who, who's being held there, hoping that her child will hear her. Let's play that sound. Rami Lee, Rami Golan, Rami, we love you. My loved one, my third one. I love you. We're doing everything to bring you home. We are telling everybody, all the leaders in our cabinet, you will bring them home now. You know, it's um, it's not lost upon most people that this is part of the trauma, the ongoing trauma. You talk to family members of hostages and every day for them is October 7th because it didn't just end that day. You still have over 100 yeah. people, innocent people that are still there. Uh, is this government prioritizing their release as part of their as as much as they're prioritizing this fight against Hamas? Well, this is a major debate in Israeli society. The hostage families have, have managed to leverage enormous pressure on the government. They have had a fairly easy time rallying large swaths of the Israeli population to make the case that the government was not prioritizing it sufficiently. Uh, many people feel that the government probably wouldn't have reached that original ceasefire that saw the release of over 100 hostages uh, if there hadn't been so much pressure from the families. And I think that the government has tried to make the case that it prioritizes both equally, but it seems like the government is not really rushing uh, to reach yet another ceasefire agreement that could see the release of further hostages. And But that brings me back to the point that I made earlier, which I think is really strongly conveyed by the situation, which is ongoing. In other words, there are egregious violations of international law, human decency, of course. Uh, these are atrocities. Holding these hostages violates you know, all of those things. And so Israelis, again, it makes it harder for them to see both sides of this. It makes it hard for Palestinians to see both sides of this. The fact is there are ongoing violations, crimes, and, you know, damage, the damage to civilians is endless. This is happening on both sides and both sides have to take responsibility for it. It is yeah. not seen as fair by Israelis that Hamas, because of the technicality of not being a state, you know, party to the ICJ, isn't the one on trial there itself because of the kinds of anguish scenes we see of these parents right. every day. Dahlia Shenlin, thank you so much for the time. I really appreciate you joining us tonight. Thank you for having me. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. 
quiets their snores, Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support, your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Well, now, Gazans are facing a desperate humanitarian crisis, with food shelves still empty and families struggling to feed themselves. Thousands were seen surrounding two aid trucks in northern Gaza last month as crucial food deliveries remain hindered by limited safe access into the Strip. According to the World Food Program, Executive Director Cindy McCain, the territory is reaching a tipping point. She speaks to Walter Isaacson about the dire situation in conflict zones and why food insecurity is a global concern. Thank you, Biana and Cindy McCain. Welcome back to the show. My pleasure. Thank you. Secretary of State Tony Blinken, just a few days ago, was in a World Food Program warehouse in Jordan talking about how important what uh, you all are doing in helping Gaza. Tell me about the situation there. Oh, gosh. Um, in, in all the years that most of the very senior people that work for me have been doing this, they've never seen anything quite like this. Uh, Gaza is is on the brink of famine. Uh, we the things that we're asking for, for with regards to WP and feeding people are act, safe access to be able to get our trucks in, and the ability to to be deconflicted so that we can work safely with when we're on the ground there. Um, it's a mess, and and more importantly in this, uh, uh, until we get more 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 access that means more gates more more routes in in the country and 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 in a faster and better way we're not going to be able to feed people well secretary of state blinken as i said was just at uh one of the warehouses in jordan uh then he went to visit israel visit uh prime minister netanyahu has he been helping you to push for access Yes, Secretary Blinken's been been wonderful. He's been helping, uh, you know, gets, certainly carrying our message and the message of others as well. Uh, and the importance of why it's necessary that we get in. Again, we are trying to stave off famine in, in Gaza. And unless we can get in there and begin to feed in a, in a large manner and in a way that can not just in the shelters, but in communities around that that where people have been pushed into, we're not going to be able to save lives. We have little children now that are that are really starving to death. And we have families that that ha that are desperate. You hear about the trucks being raided or you hear about uh, the disruption, you know, the 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 unrest that's going on. People are desperate. As you know, you will do anything to feed your family. And that's why this is so important that we be able to get in and make sure that we can feed people. The chief economist of the World Food Program said that of the 2.2 million people in Gaza now, there is a high chance of famine, that there's a food insecurity crisis going on. Explain to me what that means. 
Well, it means that that yeah, I'll I'll put it take it down to very simple tones here. Uh, so there's a family, let's say, of eight people, and and six of those are kids. Well, the parents are not going to feed themselves if they're if their only option is to feed their children. They're making hard choices about who and how to feed, how much to feed, and and so that and and just access to be able to get the food number, you know, it just fr from a bottom bottom line standpoint. Um, these are the kind of choices that these people are up against right now. And these are the kinds of things that we at WP are trying desperately to make sure that we can can help uh, help not just in the short term, but in the long term also. How much food is getting into Gaza and is there enough food if you could just get the entry into the uh, the trucks into Gaza? Yes, there 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 is enough access to food. We are we are beginning to put put a, a sizable amount together. We we are we've already started it. It is not complete yet, but that amount of food that it, when we when we do put this in place can feed Gaza for three months, the entire population of Gaza. So the that's why the access is so important. If we can get in there in a major way, to to not just uh, uh, not just feed, but make sure that the food is. First, emergency food, and then a food that's more subsistent for a long term. Uh, right now, we're, we're we're giving out emergency rations, and we need to do much more of that, especially when we're talking about young children. As you know, UNICEF has talked about this a great deal, and the the issues that that we're having with our very young children as a result of it. Human Rights Watch has accused Israel of using starvation as a weapon of war. Is that true? I can't. I can't answer that question. Uh, all all we're trying to do is is deal with what we know is happening right now on the ground, and that is we need to get in and feed. Uh, the important part of all this is making sure that the world understands the 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 desperation that's involved here. And so I'll leave those those discussions for our politicians and for our UN hierarchy. But but what what I need right now is ac safe access and the ability to get in and feed. There are more than 300 million people around the world uh, who face starvation, food crises. What's the cause of that? Is it a lack of food or is it a lack of the ability to get food to the right place? It, it's a combination of things. And I'll start with climate change. Uh, a large portion of Africa is in this kind of uh, food desperation because of climate change. Uh, and climate change has been a disaster. And I'll speak specifically to the Sahel right now. Um, it's uh, with, with the lack of rain, the lack of ability to be able to plant crops and grow crops, people are starving to death. Uh, and so, so it's up to organizations like ours to get in again and feed them. The, this, the situation worldwide is desperate. Uh, we're not looking at just a few countries. We're looking at many countries that don't have the ability to adequately feed their populations. And that's where WFP comes into play. I was reading the WFP website, which I suggest all of our viewers do. And besides climate change, it says the biggest driver is conflict. Well, tell me yeah. what. Yeah. Tell me about that. Well, conflicts have caused, have, has caused a great deal of this, and I'll speak now to Sudan. 
uh, especially because as you, as you we're all aware of what has occurred in Sudan. But as a result of that, the refugee flow has been astronomical going into Chad and Ethiopia and other countries that, within the region. And we've had to make some very tough decisions. WP, I mean, have had to make some very tough decisions because we don't have the funding. And so I've had to to deal with, in my own mind, taking food from hungry to give to the starving. And that's a decision that we have to make almost every day. And so places like Chad, like Haiti, uh, like the, like DRC Congo, um, like Somalia, uh, regions like that are, are uh, we just don't, we're spread thin and we just don't have the money. We had plenty of, plenty of funding several years ago, but we don't have the money now. And so I'm having to make some very serious, tough decisions. Tell me about who's getting cut because of these decisions. Well, we're shortening rations. So in in some some areas, we used to give rations that would last a year. Now we're down. Then we re reduce it to six months, and now we reduce it in some cases to zero. Uh, and Afghanistan's a good description of that. We can't. We just don't have the money uh, to be able to feed everyone. So I, we're having to cut people from the rolls and cut people from access to food. I was standing in a line with a woman, I was in in um, South Sudan and I watched, she was pregnant and I watched her, the, the gentleman behind the desk say, your rations are up, I can't give you any more. And I mean, she was pregnant and had two young children. These are the kinds of decisions we're having to make and we shouldn't have to make those. We, I, I'm, you know, I continue to, to raise the flag around the world about the desperation and the importance of why we need to feed and why we need to be in there, why we need the money to do it. The WFP faces a $15 billion shortfall this yeah. coming year. Why, why do we face such a shortfall of funding? I think a lot of people are, a lot of countries, I should say, have they're weary. You know, we've seen crisis after crisis after crisis and their own constituencies uh, are saying enough let's pay attention to our own our own home and i certainly understand that uh, but but still it doesn't make these starving people go away it's things just don't disappear so so i do the very best i can to make sure that people understand what's going on around the world and why it's important that we continue to do this because if if we're not going to feed them now Conflict's going to take over. The bad guys are going to roll roll in, and then we've got an even bigger problem. So, so that's why I, I continue to do what we do. I'm hopefully testify in front of Congress, speak to. I'm going to Davos this coming weekend uh, to talk about this crisis worldwide and why we need to be uh, extra diligent about what we do and why it's important that we give even more. You've just made the connection between feeding people and national security. Uh, it's something yes. I've heard you talk yep. about quite a bit. Explain why this is not just a humanitarian issue, but a national security issue. Mm -hmm. Well, it is. I mean, you, you talk about, I'll talk about a place like Somalia, or I'll talk about a place, again, like the Sahel and some of the other regions in there. Um, without adequate food, people will, as I said, will do anything. And it makes it easier for the bad guys to roll in. And that becomes a national security issue. That's a national security issue for the United States of America as well. So, so I appeal to my own government and the governments around the world to 
to look at it from a national security perspective, because if we don't feed them, the bad guys are going to get get right in there and make sure that they do feed them. How is the best way to make sure that we don't have food insecurity and food problems? Is it giving away food or is there a deeper solution to the problem? Well, we have to approach the, the, the root cause of it. Uh, you know, is it climate change? Is it conflict? Is it, uh, you know, the, 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 the cost also? Cost is a big, big deliverer in this as well. Um, there, it, we, we need to get at the root causes. Teaching people, not just teaching people how to farm, but giving them the tools and the water to do so. In many cases, it comes down to water. So, so it, it, and I think from a worldwide standpoint, I really talk a great deal about this when I'm out and about, uh, because it is important that we take a look at the root causes and make sure that we can address them, aside from just giving food, but making sure that we can make them self-sufficient. Uh, so what are, you, what are you all doing uh, to do that? So it's not just a food giveaway <laughs> program. Right. In fact, some would argue a food giveaways could be harmful in the long run. So right. tell me what you're doing to face that. Well, uh, again, we have we have lots of different um, uh, programs going on around the world. And I'll use Central America, the dry the dry zone as a good example of this. Uh, we're as I said, we're giving giving people the tools. So what does that mean? Making sure that they have land to farm on, making sure that they have access to to seed and to and to water, most importantly, and making sure that they can get them to the market. And so it, it's a matter of just supporting and, and giving them the ability to be able to do it themselves. No one wants to leave their homes. No one wants to to not be able to feed their family. So for us to be able to get to to put programs in place uh, to be able to do just that is is as has been very successful around the world. And also uh, a thing a thing that we call cash based transfers. It gives people the ability, women particularly, because it empowers women, the ability to buy on the local market rather than us giving food to them. We give them a cash-based transfer so that they can buy on the local market. That makes it, that helps everyone. It helps the entire community. So, so that's something that's been very successful that WP actually started and now has become kind of a worldwide, worldwide tool. Uh, Ukraine used to be referred to as the breadbasket of uh, a breadbasket of the world. Tell me what the uh, war in Ukraine has done to exacerbate this issue. Uh, um, yes, your 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 description is is exactly correct. Uh, it's been uh, you know with with the the inability in some cases and and a much smaller ability to be able to get grain out. It is really uh, it's really hampered. Uh, how we feed, and I'll use Madagascar as a good good example, and other regions of Africa where we could bring grain out by ship uh, and be able to to then, as you know, replenish it and do what we do with what WP does with it. Uh, we've not been able to do that in an adequate manner. We've gotten some grain out, uh, as you know, but we haven't gotten enough out, not to to the to where we were before. So so the 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 the, the Ukraine situation has been damaging in so many different ways but from a, from a, a food standpoint it's been devastating and so so we've had to we've had to, other suppliers of things of, of grains that we need we've had to had to make sure that we can can source it it's much more expensive 
that costs us money, which means, you know, it's it's later getting to where it should go. And of course, the expense is unbelievable. The global community has said that it really wants to end hunger and malnutrition by 2030. <laughs> what does that mean? And how could that be done? Well, I, 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 I will work with anybody that can offer something like that. I really will. Um, it means that we all need to work together, that we can no longer, this isn't a problem that's on somebody else's doorstep. This is a problem that's on our own doorstep. And we have to deal with hunger. And, and, and it does everybody good. When, when people are eating, they're, 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 they're calm. They're not looking for trouble. They're not, they don't become uh, a, 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 a recruited by these guys that come through. Uh, with with ne these nefarious characters that come through, it helps all of us. And so whenever I speak to groups or countries or heads of state, I say, it's listen, this is you need to be in this because this will affect you, whether it is now or not, it'll affect you. And so just just reminding the world and reminding our world leaders of the importance of working together on this. And that sounds, I know, very lofty. How do you get the world to work together? We can't seem to to do anything together. But, but I think in the, the arena of food, we need to work together. We have to. This job at the World Food Program, especially when we look at what's happening in Ukraine, now we're looking at what's happening in Gaza, around the world, it's gotta be grueling. I mean, it's really tough. You're based in Rome, you're traveling to places like Somalia and seeing it. What drives you to do this? What keeps you going? You know, I can honestly tell you, I've been been a, I consider myself a humanitarian, and I have been most of my adult life. And what drives me is I know that we can do better. I know that we can help. And so, what what drives me are the people that I see. And I mentioned the girl that was pregnant with the two kids. That's what drives me is 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 our ability as an organization and as a world to work together to feed people. Uh, in desperate situations. And that's really what drives me. What keeps me awake is not being able to feed them. Those you talk about the stress of a job, that's what keeps me awake. And what, and what to me is the most gruesome thing that I face is not being able to, to feed people. And so it, it's, it's twofold. It helps me continue on. It also breaks my heart. Cindy McCain, thanks so much for joining us. And thanks so much for what you do. Thank you. I appreciate it. From executive producers Park Chanuk and Robert Downey Jr., The Sympathizer is the new HBO original limited series based on the Pulitzer Prize winning novel of the same name. Join me, Philip Nguyen, a scholar of Vietnamese American culture, and the cast and crew as we discuss the making of this historic series. Subscribe now to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and stream HBO's The Sympathizer starting April 14th exclusively on Max. Well, at least 79 journalists have been killed since October 7th during the Israel-Hamas war. That's according to the Committee to Protect Journalists. So at a time when the media is facing unprecedented danger, we want to revisit the story of American journalist Marie Colvin, who was killed in 2012 covering the conflict in Syria. She cheated death many times, even losing an eye while reporting on the war in Sri Lanka. Christiane spoke with two people who focused on her work and life. 
Rosamund Pike, who played Maria in the movie The Private War, and Marie's friend and TV correspondent Lindsay Hilsom, who had access to Marie's diaries for her biographies in extremes. Let's look back at their conversation in 2018. Rosamund Pike, Lindsay Hilsom, welcome to the program. Thank you. You've written the book on, on Marie in Extremis, and you've had amazing access to her diaries, but you also know what, what Rosamund has learned to know by playing this singular character. Well, I think that the extraordinary thing about Marie is people often say that Marie was fearless. She wasn't really fearless, but she could always overcome her fear because she was so motivated. She was so highly motivated to tell the story of victims of war. And that was conscripts as well. There was nothing Marie liked more than sitting in a muddy trench with a bunch of soldiers and finding out what was going on. But she, she did think about her own safety. But, you know, I often worked alongside Marie, but her danger threshold was far beyond mine. And she always went in further and stayed longer. That was why she got the best stories. That was why she's not with us today. I'm going to start actually with one of the clips now because it is when she's actually meeting photographer Paul Conroy for the first time, who was with her to the end in Syria. But this is in Iraq, and she's doing her typical thing, wanting to meet up and collaborate with the best of the best. So let us just play this and we'll talk about it. What's your name? Paul. I'm Marie. Hello. So you're freelance? Always. Any good? The best. Paul, the photographer, yeah. also, I think, worked with you on the script and as a consultant and all the rest of it. What did you gain from, from, from meeting the people who she not just knew but worked in the field with? Plus, how did you get that uncannily accurate depiction of her? Oh, that's very nice. Um, I mean, M Marie was, a, was an amazing person and an inimitable presence, and I knew that in playing her I had to... I had to inhabit her, so I knew that involved changing the way I walked, changing the way I spoke, changing the way I learned to smoke. <laughs> <laughs> oh, she Which did a lot she of did that. A lot. Did you um, learn to drink vodka martinis as well? I could learn, yeah, learn to make, mix, drink, <laughs> yeah, all, of, all of the above. And, uh, and Paul Conroy came with us, I think, just to check out what we were doing for about a week and to get us up, up on our feet. And then he enjoyed it and he stayed with us and actually became our on-set stills photographer, which was, you know, probably a bit of a sort of light relief for him, really. But um, yeah. it was very, very valuable to have him around because he shared... He, got, he gave a real sense at all times of Marie and Paul's, you know, their camaraderie, of her, of the moments that she'd go dead quiet because she experienced the fear that Lindsay was talking about. Um, I agree with you, definitely not fearless. The real courage is feeling it and going there anyway. Yeah. I mean, I, I want to fast forward to a dramatic mm. towards the end of her life and I want to play one of the very last dispatches she gave from Homs, which was to Anderson Cooper. And, and it became really sort of seminal. Let's just play it. It's a complete and utter lie that they are only going after terrorists. There are rockets, shell, tank shells, um, anti-aircraft being fired in a parallel line into the city. The Syrian army is simply shelling a city of cold, starving civilians. She was in Baba Amma, one of the suburbs, uh, outposts of Homs, and she insisted on staying. And that's part of a whole sort of controversy between her and Paul and the editors and people who look at, uh, who look at what happened to her in the end. It's a pivotal moment in the film. Mm -hmm. What was going through your mind? I mean, you're playing her, you've assimilated so much, and yet 
you know, it's, it's some, some people might say that determination to stay is what cost her her life. Yes, you know, it's so funny, you know, my heart's racing. Just, oh, I haven't been nervous sitting here. And then we play that and somewhere in my body, mm. I go back to the feelings that I inhabited playing Marie at that time in, uh, in, in her life. Um, and actually she was in Homs. They, uh, they understood that, that a big assault was coming and, and it was necessitous to go to leave. They were halfway down this storm drain, this four kilometer storm drain, which was the entry and exit point for any journalist coming in to Homs taken by the FSA fighters. And she was sort of halfway down or a few hundred meters down it. And she said, I've got to go back. You know, there are 28,000 people there and I can't abandon them. And, um, and Paul said to her, you realize if we go back, we will die. And she said, I have to go back. You know, this is what we do. This is what we do. And she went back and he, of course, followed her because he wasn't going to leave her. And um, and he told me, actually, that, that they I find this very emotional. So forgive me. Um, but he he said that they both felt very strongly that they might not make the deadline for the Sunday Times that week. And that was her decision that motivated her decision to ask Sean Ryan if she could broadcast with CNN and Channel 4 and wherever, BBC. And she called me. And she spoke she called, to you. She called me. She called me. And I said, and I was furious with her. I was furious. I said, Marie, why did you go back? And she said, Lindsay, it's the worst thing we've ever seen. And I said, I know, but, you know, what's your exit strategy? And she said, that's just it. We don't have one. I'm working on it now. And then a few hours later, she was killed. But the majority of journalists killed in Syria are Syrians. And I think that that is so important, that the majority of journalists under threat all over the world are under threat from their own governments and mm. from organised criminals. I want to play, because this film is called A Private War, so it's not just about Marie's war work, it's also about her internal war with herself. And she had, as you know, we mm. know, a lot of PTSD. She was a heavy drinker. She had a couple of miscarriages. She had failed marriages. She had suicide. She had divorce. She had just so much going on in her, in her own life as she was nonetheless conducting this work at a very high level. And I just want to play Marie accepting an award back in 2000, and then Marie talking to Paul in the film when she's actually at one of the rehabilitation clinics. The pain of war is really beyond telling. Um, I don't think I've ever filed a story and felt I got it. You know, I really said what I want people to feel, um, but I do try. And I think whatever the rights and wrongs of a conflict, I feel we fail if we don't face what war does, um, face the human horrors rather than just record who won and who lost. I fear growing old. But then I also fear dying young. I'm most happy with a vodka martini in my hand, but I can't stand the fact that the chatter in my head won't go quiet until there's a quart of vodka inside me. I hate being in a war zone. But I also feel compelled. Compelled. 
see it for myself. So it's really real. Yeah, I think I think in order to, I think Matthew and I both felt that in order to, you know, really do Marie justice, we needed to go into the depths of her soul. And I think, you know, I'm very very interested in the cost of doing any job at a high level, um, whether it's sport or whether it's mm. what you do. Um, and I think, you know, it, I think it's a very complicated place for the war correspondent because I'm sure you must feel. When you're out there, you're exposed to so much trauma and so much of other people's pain. There must be a part of you that thinks, "Well, why am I feeling? Because it's not my pain to feel." Yep. And yet, you must feel. You cannot be exposed mm. to that level of trauma without feeling. So, where on earth does it go? I mean, one of the reasons I called the book "In Extremists" is because it was a quote from Marie. She said, I, "What I write about is people, you know, living in extremists and what really happens in war." But obviously, she also lived her own life yes. in extremists. Yes. That that was it. But I suppose. I also want to say, because this is all serious stuff, she was the best company. She was the funniest person. Yeah. I said, you know, I used to think of us as the Thelma and Louise of the press corps, <laughs> you know, because whenever I, you know, I would be anywhere, Marie would turn up and I go, Whew. well, now, you know, I'm going to have fun. And there was an occasion, and that, we're not supposed to joke about these things now, but there was an occasion when uh, we were uh, on a stage and a uh, very earnest young woman got up and said, you know, how do you cope with the trauma? And Marie turns to me and she said, well, she says, Lindsay and I, we go to bars and we drink. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. You know, and what do we call it? Black humour. Rosamund Pike, thank you so much. <laughs> Lindsay Hilson, thank you very much. You A private war and in extremists. Fantastic conversation. And finally, we close our show with some music, our best way to close the show. Take a listen and think about where you may have heard this before. The piece is called Adiemis, and it was famously used by Delta Airlines in commercials and in flight. It was written by Carl Jenkins, one of the world's most popular living composers. His works, including The Armed Man, A Mass for Peace, in Palladio, are performed around the, world, the, the globe. This year, Sir Carl celebrates his 80th birthday with a world tour, beginning at New York's Carnegie Hall. Where else? And he joins me live from there now. Sir Carl Jenkins, thank you so much for joining us. It is quite an honor to have you on the program. You're, seven, you're celebrating your 80th birthday with an international concert tour. Why did you decide now was when you wanted to do this on your 80th? Well, I usually come here every year or so, apart from the COVID years, of course, um, to be present at a concert of my, my own music that uh, DCINY put on, John Holm Griffith's a conductor, and Iris Dirk, who's uh, a fellow founder of the company. So it's a special year, it's a special number. Um, it won't come around again, so <laughs> it seemed a good idea to, to link it with a, with a concert. I mean, I would have been here anyway at this time, but the birthday is actually in February, February the 17th. So it's a pre-birthday concert. So I'm honored and thrilled, thrilled to be here for this. Same birthday as my stepson. So I'll keep that in mind when we celebrate him. We'll be celebrating you as well. Um, I'm just wondering, reflecting back on all of the previous tours and, and time spent in New York, uh, you know, your piece really, your, your music really focusing so much 
on peace at a time when there's so much turmoil around the world now two years into the war in Ukraine, obviously the ongoing war uh, in Israel with, with uh, Hamas and Gaza. Is it even more poignant for you now? Yes, it kind of goes what goes around, you know, it comes around again. And it's the Amman was written, commissioned in 1998 uh, as a millennium piece to celebrate the millennium and hopefully a century of peace and love and good faith in each other and a wonderful world, but it never happened. Um, at the time, the global conflict was the war in the Balkans, Kosovo, so I dedicated the peace to the victims of Kosovo. Now it will either be Ukraine or um, what's happening in the Middle East. It's all quite tragic. I've just written a piece called One World, which talks about the planet, how we got here, and deals with issues like slavery, mendacious politicians, of which there are quite a few in the UK and, and in the USA. So um, it's all, it's quite depressing really, but it's what I do, it's my, it's my, well not livelihood, it's more than that, it's like a drug, I'm addicted to writing music, so that's, that's what I do. So, and it's ironically, ironically the new work is called One World, and the the one movement that uh, summarizes the, uh, what it's all about is uh, a, a, a saying in Hebrew called tikkun olam, mm -hmm. which means repair the world. And there's pure chance that this, this thing has blown up in, um, in Israel and Palestine now. You mentioned the armed man. Uh, here you are, solo piano performance. Let, let's play it for our viewers. I just really wanted to use that as an excuse to watch you play and have our audience respond and listen to it as well. So I don't have a question off of that, but I do want to talk about your tour in New York because you observed Martin Luther King with concert, Martin Luther King Day with concerts in New York, obviously a man who strived for peace and equality. Talk about the significance of that and his legacy as exposed through your music. Uh, who, about Carnegie Hall, you mean? Yes, Carnegie Hall, but you observed Martin Luther King Day with concerts in New York at Carnegie Hall. Yeah, it's, mon it's Monday, but Carnegie Hall is kind of iconic place. I thought I'd have to remember my list, but I, I'm in the archive room, and it's incredible. What's, it's Dvorak, the Czech composer, um, who's, who's here, um, Yehudi Menuhin, uh, Toscanini, Maria Callas, and then there Count Basie, uh, Billy Eckstein, Rolling Stones, <laughs> I could go out, Frank Sinatra <laughs> over there, and then Billy Holiday over there, Charlie Parker, Dizzy Gillespie, Stan Getz. So composers, I mean conductors, Bernstein, you know, a global icon, um, and the movie, which I've just seen. Um, it's, all, it's remarkable, really, and it's probably the most iconic concert hall. In, in the world. I mean, it must be, if you judge it by the number of 
wonderful people who have come through here on, on this stage. So it's an honor, it's an honor to, to, to come to, to this room, really, and, and, and perform. And yet you've, you've never left your Welsh roots behind. Obviously, um, King Charles chose your work to perform at his coronation. I was going to ask you about something you've been asked about before now, uh, just the, the, the idea, perhaps, that <laughs> you were making Markle in disguise. Uh, you've addressed that before. We'll have to talk about that, uh, that another oh, that. time. <laughs> that. The Meghan Markle thing, oh yeah. Well, that was a great moment in my life. Not that, but the fact that being present at the coronation because it, and writing a piece of music for it, because it's like being part of history, um, being present when something happened. Uh, funnily enough, I saw, I saw the coronation of his mother, the Queen, from wow. a small television, black and white, 12-inch screen, whenever it was, when I was, I was nine years old in South what Wales, an honor. Where, I, where I was raised. So, yeah, so I never thought that would come around with me part of it. Well, um, we want to wish you a happy birthday and keep playing, keep performing. Your music resonates around the world. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And thank you so much for watching. Uh, we do want to leave you with this. The great Welsh harpist, Katrine Finch, playing Carl Jenkins' concerto, Toss a Garang. Goodbye from New York. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.